You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told October 9th, 2018 at Northern Light United Church. The theme was Karma. Live music was by Grayscale. Our first story is from Becky Bear. Becky was born and raised in Chicago, but that's another story. She came to Juno in her early 30s, which is what tonight's story is about. She's been a storyteller for most of her life, doing it on stage since 1990. She was honored to be a guest teller for three years at the Yukon International Storytelling Festival and still marvels how that invisible line between us and Whitehorse made her an international teller. Tonight's story of karma comes in many forms. Please help me welcome Becky to the stage. I told them they were making me nervous because I'm not used to talking to a time limit. You know, karma, we think of it as that one big event. Sometimes it's a series of events that pushes you to an end. I went back to college in my late 20s because I'd seen someone with a video porta pack doing video. That's when these things were really big and heavy. And I wanted to do that. So three years into the program, I met this woman from Point Hope. She was the last, her, her grandfather was the last ceremonial shaman of Point Hope, Alaska. And because of that, she felt a special responsibility to try and pre preserve knowledge of the old ways. Well, the really good way to do that was with video, but we didn't have time to, tra to train her. So I said to her, I don't know how it's going to happen, but somehow, some way, I will come up to Alaska and work with you. Point one. You know, this is hard doing it on to seven minutes. <laughs> In fact, I just went blank. I got this? You sure I got this? I lived it, yes. Oh, yes. So I was working in the television studio and was in line to become the director of the new studio. Unfortunately, my boss, a woman, left for greener pastures, and the new boss, a man, decided that I was not anatomically correct to take this job. So he hired the other candidate, a guy who had had absolutely no zero experience in television. That's how much I rated. Hmm. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just blanking all of a sudden. This is a, <laughs> and I'm an experienced storyteller. This is wild. <laughs> Shows you how much experience will do for you. Oh, so. In addition to losing this, this potential job, all of a sudden, my long-term relationship blew up. And I was in such pain that all the lower 48 wasn't big enough for the two of us. 
that left Alaska. So I called Bertha and I said, hey, you know, I've just started this doctoral program and I have college work study. If you can find someone who'll pay $20 a week, I can come up and work for you. She did, I did, and drove the Alaska Highway all by myself before they paved that puppy in 1976. I didn't know what I was getting into, but it was a great trip. I arrived here on June 22, 1976, three o'clock in the morning, crystal clear, sky painted with the colors of the dawn. I got off the ferry, which was coming in down where the visitor center is now, took one look around and went, oh my God. Walking down Franklin Street, you know, then those days there were no bar hours, the red dog was going tinka, 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 and I went, I've stepped back in time. I knew I'd found home. Three days later, I was introduced to Eric. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a van girl. I love vans like some women like pickups. I love vans. <laughs> and so I had come up in a van that we had converted for me, a van, uh, a home for one. He also had a van. And he was kind of cute, too. Well, it didn't take long for us to become a number, which lasted about three weeks until my circumstances changed and I wasn't leaving for Anchorage. And he confessed that, you know, he really wanted a short-term thing because he'd just come out of a long relationship and he wanted to go spread wild oats. So, bye. But you know, I really liked the guy. I went to Anchorage, came back down in the fall, spent some time with him, he was a bit distant, but I left a little hook in that I had a paycheck that I needed to cash, and I got him to cash it for me, which means that three or four weeks later, I got to call and say, so by the way, did everything go through with the check? A great excuse to talk to him. He said yes, and that was the end of all my hooks. But that spring, my girlfriend and I were running around doing things, and we decided we were going to drive up to uh, Wisconsin and hear Frank Zappa. Well, I decided I needed a jacket. Now, I was living in this trailer. Well, it had a Wanigan, but a trailer that was about three steps across. So I walked in, grabbed a jacket, turned around, started out the door, and the phone rings. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? I answer the phone, and it's Eric. Um, so do you live close to O'Hare? How close is close? So what brings you down? Oh, I'm going to go see my mother in Michigan. Hmm. Yes, I live close. Would you like me to pick you up? So I bring him home with me, and we spend all night talking about karma. At the end of the evening, I say to him, as the dawn is rising, okay, do you want to sleep on the couch, which is a little short, or do you want to come sleep with me? He says, I don't know whether I want to be your friend or your lover, and I uttered the most faithful words I've ever uttered in my life. Can you allow to be between us what will be between us? Now, I had been assured that I couldn't get pregnant. Ha! <laughs> I was, so I got to write the letter. Dear Eric, you need to decide the relationship you want with the child, but that doesn't determine your relationship with me. He writes back, I can't think of anybody I'd prefer to have as the mother of my child. 
when the baby was born, he came down when the baby was 11 weeks old. Now a baby, if it looks at a strange person, you know, sort of cries. Not this one. He looks at the strange person and smiles a beatific smile. Hmm. So we make the trip to Michigan. We come back down. Everybody's dead tired. The baby will not go to sleep until he has my hand, then Eric's hand, then my hand, then Eric's hand on top. And then he gives us the beatific smile and we say, do you think he's trying to tell us something? Eric comes back to Juneau, calls me up and says, he'd spent the weekend with his girlfriend and all weekend he'd spent talking about me. I go, oh no, I am the wrong person to say this, but if you're in bed with one woman talking about another woman, you're in love with the woman you're talking about. He thought about it for two days and agreed, come on up to Alaska. Well, you know, I'd only known him for six weeks, and I felt like a mail-order bride. So a friend of mine got me a T-shirt, mail-order bride. I arrived in Juneau on August 25th with my five-month-old son on my arm wearing a, a mail-order bride T-shirt. He stood there with a single rose. We did turn heads. We were married in October. And no one from our family came because, of course, it wasn't going to last. It lasted 32 years until his death. Our next storyteller is uh, Kristen Rankin. Kristen hails from Ohio and Washington, D.C. In 2017, she decided she had enough of the East Coast, so she quit her job, did some adventuring, and landed in Juneau this past spring. She now works on violence prevention in the state. Kristen is aware the weather is not always as wonderful as it's been recently, thank you, and asked you to refrain from reminding her. <laughs> this is her very first mudrooms, and so to reduce nervousness, she is imagining you are all in your underwear. Please welcome Kristen to the stage. The physics is simple. When you apply a force to an object, that object is going to travel in the same direction of that force, meaning that when I yanked on the rope with the bag of rocks stuck up in the tree, it traveled back at me in the same direction, determined in this case by my line of sight. It flew through the night air and smacked me right in the forehead, beautifully in between the eyes. Now this was pretty much on par with how my last few days had been going. It was mid-July, I was in eastern Pennsylvania in the middle of the woods. I had been walking for days in 90-something degree heat through poison ivy and clouds of gnats that just hung around my face. I hadn't showered for at least four days and I was subsisting primarily on ramen noodles and cliff bars. See, I was hiking the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine, 2,190 miles. Now, before you think that this is one of those wonderful stories about me finding myself, this is not that kind of story. <laughs> this story is about crapping your pants as an adult, about still eating the string cheese that you dropped and watched roll in the dirt, 
about begging a stranger to inspect your head for the tick you swear is there, but turns out it's just this weird combination of sap and dirt that got glued to your head. <laughs> this story is about choices. But all of those realities weren't really in my mind when I was deciding whether or not I should quit my nice, well-paying job in Washington, D.C., get rid of most of my belongings, say goodbye to my friends, and basically snip away at all the comfortable lifelines I had. No, I was thinking about that wonderful, amazing journey I would go on, and I was thinking about that feeling that I would and did have uh, standing on Katahdin, that final mountain in Maine after five and a half months of hiking. That feeling was unlike anything I have ever felt in my life. But three months and 1,100 miles in, things were not so romantic. I knew what I was doing at this point, but the monotonous routine was getting to me. Every day, you wake up, you pack up all of your belongings, you hike 15 to 20 miles, you unpack all of your belongings, and you do it again, rinse and repeat. So that night was pretty much like all of the others. I got in, I unpacked all of my things, set up my tent, got water, boiled water, cooked food, ate my food, cleaned up, and I went off to my next task, which was throwing a bear bag. Now, for those of you who prefer refrigerators, a bear bag is a bag that you keep all of your food and smelly things in, and you hang from a tree at night so bears and other critters can't get to it. But the thing with bear bags is that they're not the easiest to hang. Firstly, you have to find the right tree. It's got to have a, a nice, strong branch that isn't close to any others. It's strong enough to hold a bag of food, but it's not strong enough for a bear to get out on. You have to throw it just so in between the middle of the branch so the bear can't reach it from the trunk and it's not too far out on the limb where it can't hold its weight. And key to all of this is the throwing part. Now, for those of you who, like me, dreaded any sport growing up requiring hand-eye coordination, you will feel me here. That is hard to do, particularly when you are tired and all you want to do is sleep. So that night, things are not going well. I am about five or six tries in, and I'm failing miserably. My body hurts, I'm tired, and I just want to lie down. I try again, and I throw it up, and I get it over the right branch, but it's way too close to the trunk. Uh, I begin to pull it back dejectedly, but it gets stuck. The bag of rocks that I'm using as a weight get stuck in two smaller branches. This is the last thing I needed. So I decide, after trying to wiggle it out and that didn't work, I decide to yank hard on it to get it free. So I yank once, nothing, twice, and it hurls, hurtles through the air and hits me right in the forehead. I stand there stunned. I think I had cartoon birds circling around me, chirping. I had just hit myself in the face with rock. I've been trying to think what my exact thoughts were at this moment, if it were expletives or a longing of my former life, but I think it was 
just a whelp? Because <laughs> what do you do at that moment when you're by yourself in the woods and everything is going wrong? You do as you do on any other point, low point on the trail. You take the bad that comes along with the good, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and your string cheese, and you keep going. So I picked up that bag of rocks, I checked myself for blood, checked the vision, I took aim and I tried again. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Larry Johansson. Larry is a second-generation Alaskan who grew up in a town on a rain-swept island in southeast Alaska. Some know the town as Ketchikan. Others say it should have been named Catch-a-Bucket. After college, he moved to Juneau for the dry weather. Although he spent much of his youth in perpetually wet clothing, he has many fond memories of growing up there. Please welcome to the stage, Larry. At age 14, he left home for the last time. He never saw his parents again. It had been explained to him that there wasn't enough food and that he needed to find a, a better way. So he signed on to work on the packer that moved up and down the coast of Norway, delivering fish for five years until he had enough money to get passage to America. When he finally arrived in Nova Scotia, the captain of the vessel pointed to a smokestack in the far distance and told him that he should go there because he would find work. So he did. And before long, he had enough money to get the rest of the way to his destination, which was South Bend, Washington, where his two brothers had gone before and where there was a thriving community of Norwegians that were established there. So he made his way and met his brothers and the three of them invested in a fishing boat to come to Alaska. So they did. But while he was at South Bend, he met a, a lady, Edna, who was Norwegian, but she was born the second child of her father's second marriage. She was lucky she was able to go to school. She went to school at Western Washington College of Teaching and was a teacher. My grandfather was actually south when he heard news that her father had died. He left his brothers and went south to, to, to bring her back. While he was down there, he got the, the tragic news that it, his brothers had been lost at sea, last seen at leaving Myers Chuck, heading north to Wrangell, and all that was found was wreckage on Onslet Island at the mouth of bottom of Wrangell Narrows. So with his new wife, both suffering losses, she agreed to marry him if he would take a land job and forget about the sea because he had lost a brother earlier and he was to lose another one later. He would be the only brother that would make it. He took a job at Union Oil 
he did well in Ketchikan. They promoted him to manager. His school teacher wife had taught him how to read and write in English, and he did well. They moved him back to Ketchikan before the war. He was a manager of Union Oil. He found himself the manager of a military asset when the Japanese landed on Dutch, Dutch Harbor. And he remembers that he was patrolling the grounds of the fuel yard and the blackouts. The threat of Japanese invasion was very real for Alaskans. He did that for many years. And then he was offered a, a job as the city assessor at Ketchikan. It was a big job. And almost immediately, he came upon a, a major crisis. He did his tax assessments, and he did an evaluation of the canneries and realized that the, the assets were being undervalued quite a bit. At the time, fishing in Alaska was the was before timber made its big, big push. And Ketchikan was the salmon capital of the world. And messing with the canneries was not something you did. But the young assessor stood by his evaluation of the property. And the canneries sued the city of Ketchikan. And the case was pretty big news. But in the end, the judgment came back all counts, all charges that the cannery owners, who were from mostly from Seattle, vindicated the, the work of the assessor and his, his calculations were backed by the court. He spoke of that in an interview I did with him in the 1980s, but it took research to really understand what, what that meant and stories that, that were just family legends He, this was all before I was born. I knew him as the man that many others knew him as, as a man who loved to laugh, a man that found reason to laugh and never seemed to have a, a down day, always positive. He was quite an athlete. He was able to leap over a broomstick while holding onto it. Try that at home and tell me how it works out. But he could do that at the age of, I remember seeing him, he was the age that I am probably now when he was able to do this. But he, in retirement, he loved to go fishing. And I would take him fishing because I was the oldest of the grandchildren. And he, in his later years, developed Parkinson's. So I spent many years with him and actually lived with him for a couple of years and watched the disease take a vibrant, a vibrant personality, strip his body from him, but he never lost the sparkle in his eye. And he left in 1988, he passed away at the age of 84. And I thought I'd learned everything that I had to learn from him. But 
10 years ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And I realized, and I realized that he had left me the greatest gift of all, which was a path on how to live a life with dignity and security and knowing that it was gonna be okay because we, we, we knew who he was and we loved him. And when I was diagnosed 10 years ago, I knew that it would be okay. I got this. Karma is something that is passed on to your generation. It's something that, that you can lose to the generations. It's gift from one to the other. And I'm thankful for my grandfather for living the life that he did providing me the example of how to live my life. So thank you very much. Our next storyteller is Joel Curtis. Joel has been a meteorologist with the National Weather Service for over 35 years. Most of his career has been either in Anchorage or Juneau. Joel has been warn the warning coordination meteorologist at the Juneau Forest Forecast Office uh, since 2006. Joel enjoys hanging out on the beaches around Yakutat and would rather surf than eat. Please welcome Joel to the stage. I tend to think of karma as coming up from a past life. So what did you do before and how did you end up here? Karma, reincarnation, right? Well, I love dogs, I really do. And I especially love Labrador retrievers. And the re one of the reasons that I really, really love labs is that they're so eager to please you that makes them really easy to train, okay? But they're also devious and mischievous. And they know just how to get you and their timing is impeccable. Now, in, sep in sep August and September, I was out on two wildland fires in the northwestern tip of Montana. And I met this lab. And his name was Shadow. It was a young dog. It was about 100 pounds or so. And he was always all around the fire camp with his owner, Dean, who was a fire management officer for the Kootenai National Forest in that part of Montana. And you might ask, well, what are you doing on a wildland fire? Well, I was down there. What? I have this really, really cool job called incident meteorologist. And what it is, is there's about 70 or 80 of us in the whole country that are trained to go out on wildland fires and predict the weather. And as you can imagine, the weather is really impactful on fire behavior. For example, the temperature, the relative humidity, the wind speed, wind direction, and thunderstorms, they're all really, really important in fire behavior. Now something about wildland fire is that the fire fighting teams are managed by a thing that they call the incident command system. 
And what that thing is, is it's a system of organization and you promote the objectives that you want to achieve for a certain period of time, like to, and that you know where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, and what actions you're supposed to take, and who you answer to. You have only one boss. So, as the forecaster on the fire, I generally have to get my forecast ready in the afternoon and evening, and I, they're written out and, and published in a plan. And then I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning because there's an operational briefing at 7 a.m. And I have to go through all the weather and check very, very carefully to see if the weather forecasts that I actually put out are making any sense or they're going to work out today or does the new data say, hey, you better change your mind and change it really, really quick. So I have to take notes. I have to take notes because I'm terrified of forgetting an important detail. Okay, that just like really, really bothers me. So I take these really, really good notes. And then at about 6.30 or so, the briefing's at 7. It's a beautiful, clear sky and just maybe just a couple of little clouds around and they're all turning pink, sunrise, about 40 degrees and everybody can see their breath and it's kind of calm. It's outdoors, there's a big stage there. And all the fire crews are starting to gather, about 150, 200 people or so and the, and the bosses are gonna be there too. And what I do is before the briefing, I go out and I talk to the wildland firefighters see what, they're, what kind of weather they're experiencing on the fire line. And is there anything more that I can provide for them to make their job easier? And then the other thing that I'm talking to is that each crew has what they call a lookout. That's a person that will establish themselves with a really good point of view so they can see and they'll radio in to the fire crew any changes in the fire. It's a real safety issue. And these guys also take the weather for me. So I'm talking at, at 6.57 in the morning to my friend Dan, who's a lookout on one of the crews, and he's giving me all this really great weather, and we're talking about how it's going down and everything like that. And I'm holding my notes down in my left hand, like you see right now. It's down here. And suddenly I feel my notes snatched out of my hand. And I look down, and I see Shadow, the Labrador Retriever. He's got my notes in his mouth. No! And in the meantime, his owner, Dean, is trying to pry these jaws open, and dog slobber is going everywhere, and my notes are now like in three or four pieces. And I got them back, and I turn to the crowd of firefighters, and I go, the dog ate my homework. The dog ate my homework. And everybody is in absolute hysterics. Well, just like mudrooms, the show must go on. And I know at 7 o'clock the briefing starts, and at 7.02 I'm going to be on the stage, and I have to give this weather forecast and all the details that I've got all written up in these notes. So I run over there, and I grab a blue roll of masking tape. That's what they put the maps up with, right? And I taped this, these notes together and I'm shaking the dog drool off of these things. And God, man, it's just gross. I can heart, I can read it. 
And the show must go on. And at 7.02, I get up and give my talk. But I have to leave you with a karma question. What did Shadow do in a former life? Was he an incident meteorologist? Thank you. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded live October 9th, 2018 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was karma. Curious? Visit our website at mudrooms.org. Scott Ranger is our next storyteller. Scott came to Juno in 2007 to visit his firstborn daughter, Bess. Finding himself in love with Juno, two years later he became a naturalist guide for Gastineau Guiding and has been leading tours with them now and then for 10 seasons. In 2011, he and his wife, Annette, bought a house here, and in 2014, their second daughter married an Alaskan and moved to Juneau. Two years ago, on the summer solstice, their granddaughter, Mabel, became a Bartlett baby. There's more. Uh, <laughs> Scott's been telling stories as an interpretive naturalist for decades, beginning as a park ranger at Crater Lake National Park. While at Cumberland Gap National Historic Park, he met Annette in a cave in Kentucky. That's another story. They ended up spending nearly four decades in her hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, where both daughters are grits. Um, it's an anachronism. Um, girls raised in the South, G-R-I-T-S, where they still own a home in Atlanta. They'll be leaving the end of this month and have plans for much of the winter to wander about in their motorhome, but we'll be returning to Juno in early March. Please help me welcome Scott Ranger to the stage. I don't believe in karma. I don't even know what to think about what goes around comes around. And I'm not even so sure about you reap what you sow. But I do believe that little random acts of kindness, liberally spread without expectation, can produce wonders. <laughs> Megan, at seven, was a brownie. And she puts on that cute little brownie uniform and that sash with all of the badges that pro proudly proclaims her a member of Troop 629, is armed with their Gir Girl Scout cookie order form, and goes up the street and gets lots of orders. Now, every street in most communities has the woman in that house, Margaret. She was a curmudgeon. The answer to everything was no! Well, Megan screwed up her courage, and after getting lots of orders, knocks on Margaret's door, and Margaret comes out and says, what do you want? Would you like to buy some Girl Scout cookies? And she said, yes. Amazing. But she expected Megan to have them right there with her now. And Megan had to explain, oh, no, no, we have to order them, and they'll be here in a while, and I'll come back and deliver them to you in a month. I'll be dead by then! <laughs> Megan goes home not knowing what to think, like only a seven-year-old would deal with the truth of somebody dying by the next time she sees them. 
And that led to a lot of conversations around the dinner table. And we decided as a family just to shower Margaret with niceness. So every time we'd see her, we'd, hi, Margaret. And we talked about making eye contact. And we just kept doing it. And eventually, there'd be a little smirk and maybe even a little. And then one day, Mr. Brown across the street, she goes and visits him. And a relationship develops. I'd like to think that maybe we had a little bit to do with that, but I, I don't know. But it was really nice. And what I can tell you, after many years of repeated action of little acts of kindness, the curmudgeon left. And she died a happy woman. My mother was a lifelong Lutheran with full Norwegian blood, which means she's like that mother on Prairie Home Companion that whines about Norwegian guilt. Oh, yes. Well, one day, some new neighbors move in across the street from my mother, Mickey and Judy, a really nice couple, and we meet them when we go to visit. And Judy was a really accomplished piano player and had a piano, a grand piano to match. And so we were over there listening to her play at times and just waving hi and talking every time we saw them when we visit. And mother was a, and mother found out they were lesbians. <laughs> she could not even look. Oh! Well, Mickey and Judy had been around the block and they continued to show little random acts of kindness liberally spread without expectation, saying hi to mother, hi to mother, hi to mother. During George the Lesser's second inauguration, when, <laughs> when the vice president, Cheney's daughter, became out well known that she was lesbian, mother and I were having a conversation on the telephone and I don't know how it came up, but it did. And I asked her, well, Mother, what do you think about that? Well, I think whatever two women want to do in their own home is their own business. And I go, holy smokes, an 85-year-old woman? Little acts of kindness, liberally spread without expectation, can deliver wonders. Okay, our next storyteller is Lisa Wallace. Lisa showed up in Juno 25 years ago, and a lot of us have heard this before or remember this ourselves. She was only planning on to stay a year. But Granite Creek Basin and Mount Jumbo trapped her here. If you recognize her, you may have spent time in the Beirut ICU or ER, where she worked as a nurse for 15 years, or else you too have had a kid who plays hockey. She still works as a nurse, but now she spends her days arguing with the insurance companies, but at least she gets nights and holidays off. She is very grateful to Terry Stage Harvey for giving her the nudge to come to Mudrooms and to write something a wee longer than a nurse's note or a Facebook post. Please welcome Lisa to the stage. Well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that I, too, am imagining you in your underwear. 
but I've been a nurse in this town for a very long time, <laughs> so some of you I might not have to imagine. <laughs> it's the summer of 2003. I'm driving through Manitoba on my way back to Juneau, and I'm screaming at God. Now, I wouldn't have told you at that time that I was a religious person, but I'd been having conversations with God for years since I was a little girl. It's okay, we can go from there. <laughs> but I've been having conversations with God since I was a little girl. Only this time was different. I was screaming. I was raging. I was probably swearing at God. My biological clock was going off in a way that I had never heard before. And there was no snooze button to be found. I wanted to know why I wasn't a mom, why I didn't have a family of my own. What more can I do? I am a good person. I have done what I'm supposed to do. I work as a nurse. I volunteer with children. I recycle. I give money to public radio. What else do I have to do? I am a good person. And into this rage, I was hit with a jolt. And I heard, or I sensed, adopt. Adopt. Well, I've never been one to give up an argument that quickly, so my rage continued. Adopt? Are you crazy? I'm alone. I work long shifts, 12 hours, weekends, holidays. I have no family in this town. I have a temper and I like to sleep and being a single parent would not work. I'm not doing it, I can't do it. As I continued to rage though, I began to be filled with the single most overwhelming sense of peace and calm that I can ever imagine. And I heard, just have faith. Just have faith. And that sense of calm and peace was so overwhelming that I traveled the rest of the way home to Juno with a huge grin on my face because I knew I was gonna adopt a child. And when I got back here to Juno, any one of you that would listen would have heard me tell you that I was adopting a child. And as I announced to the world that I was adopting a child, I gathered information. And one of the crucial pieces of information that I gained was that my neighbor down the street was in the process of adopting. So I trotted on down to talk to her and found out she was adopting from Russia. Well, I went home and did some research and ended up calling up the agency she was adopting from. My journey was on its way. And then she came to me and she said, nights, weekends, holidays, ah, we'll do your daycare. We've got a girl coming from Russia. We'd love to have your child here with her at some times. The pieces were falling into place. At the same time, though, I had begun reading. And I'd been reading about, about the traumas of children who are abandoned and are, you know, neglected. And so, you know, no child is abandoned and put in an institution and comes out unscathed. So I was worried about my child. I wanted to give something to this kid that was changing my life already. I didn't even know him. So I started talking to God again. And the one thing I could think to ask was that he put a gleam in this kid's eye so that somebody would notice him, so somebody would give this kid a little extra attention. And every night, that's what I asked for. And finally, Ilya's referral came to me with a video, and I sent it off to the University of Washington. There's an adoption clinic there. And one day, Dr. Julia Bledsoe called me from the clinic 
And she went over his record with me and told me what all the Russian speak meant. And then she got to the video and she took a deep breath. And she said, you know, I haven't seen a referral like this come out of Russia in a long time. Not one this good. She said, I've got to think that he's somebody's favorite in that orphanage. He's getting extra attention. I'm not sure I said goodbye or thank you. I was crying so hard. About, well, more than a year and two trips to Russia later, the Russians finally gave me a court date. And if you live in Juneau, you know this is a big deal. It was July 4th. Two of my best friends volunteered to come to Russia with me to help me bring my child home. And on July 4th, the Russian government declared me Ilya's mom. And on July 5th, my 39th birthday, they put him in my arms and I didn't have to give him back. And we eventually made our way back here to Juneau and standing at the bottom of the stairs at the Juneau airport was my little brother because we'd planned a trip, a vacation for his family to be here in Juneau. We just didn't know it would be when Ilya came home. And unbeknownst to me, my sister-in-law was applying for jobs here and she got one. So two months later, they moved here from Michigan and my son now had two cousins, an aunt and an uncle, a mile away and I had family. And finally, during this whole process, I met a guy. <laughs> One of the odd goods that we find here in Alaska. <laughs> Somebody who wanted nothing to do with being a dad or having a family. We figured we'd spend time together and then my son would come and we'd be on our merry ways. As you can tell, this adoption took a while, so we kind of grew to like each other. And when Ilya came home, this guy, he didn't disappear. He'd come over for the occasional dinner, then the lunch, and then sometimes he'd be there at breakfast, and Ilya got to where he wanted him there. And then he was living with us. And finally, one day, Ilya climbed up in his lap, and he said, Tom, are you my dad? I held my breath. Tom looked at him and he said, you know, buddy, I think I am. I think I am. And with that, Illy got a dad and I got that family I wanted. So I don't know about karma. I have to tell you, I thought I had built up a font full of good karma. But it was only when I raged at God, when I gave up control, that I was able to see my destiny and to be given the karmic gift of the small miracle. And that small miracle is now 14 years old, plays piano like you wouldn't believe, and is over at the Treadwell Arena tonight playing hockey with his dad sitting in the stands watching him. And the only thing he had to say about me giving this talk was, okay, mom, just don't say anything weird. Our last storyteller of the evening is Gordon Blue. Gordon is a recover, um, <coughs> excuse me. Gordon is a recovering crab fisherman and priest at Holy Trinity Episcopal Church. He's been hanging around in Alaska since 1972. This is his fifth year of call here. Um, the many previous adventures he had in Juneau 
are not for the current record. He has three children and a spousal partner, and they are all wonderful. He never expected to live this long, but is grateful that he has. Please welcome Gordon to the stage. Thank you. Wow, what stories. I set out to travel from Seattle just before my 19th birthday. It wasn't a good plan. Winter was coming. In fact, it wasn't much of a plan at all. I'd been fired from my job. My hair was too long. And I had about $500 saved. And Icelandic Airlines was offering round-trip tickets from New York to Luxembourg for $212. So I bought one. Some friends helped out. Mel gave me a backpack. It was a Trapper Nelson with a wooden frame. And Iris, Iris gave me a copy of Desiderata printed on parchment paper. <laughs> and Howard gave me six Kennedy half dollars and a contact in Ireland. Keith dropped me by the I-90 on-ramp. I stuck out my thumb and I was off. Near Missoula, two cowboys gave me a ride. They were young fellas in a pickup. They told me, in Montana, if you hitchhike near a, a mental hospital or a prison, you can get arrested and have to pay a big fine. And then they dropped me by a sign that verified what they had to say. <laughs> it was the state mental hospital, and it was okay. I walked away. And the next two guys that picked me up were also young. And one said he was a draft dodger, and the other said he was a deserter. And together we drove down through the Grand Tetons and across Yellowstone Park just before the road closed for the winter, and it was beautiful. And they put me down along a road in Wyoming where the cold winds blow. A trooper came by after a while and said, you can stand here okay, but don't put out your thumb. <laughs> then he let me sit in his car for a while and get warm. I went to Kent in Ohio, to Kent State, and I looked at the field where the shooting had been, and I looked at the Cuyahoga River near a bridge that it had burned when it caught fire. And I left there with a young lady who wanted to visit her boyfriend in Maine. It went well until we got to Herkimer, New York. We were arrested for trespassing. The tollway, you know, is private property. At 7.30 in the morning, the magistrate had children in wet diapers and a cranky wife. And he got out his books, and by the time they put us on the bus, I had spent more than half my remaining cash. But I got to that airport on time, 
I got on the plane at Kennedy. You know, I had never been on a plane before. It was exciting. I thought it might be a little unusual because the stewardesses kept getting knocked to their knees as they tried to make their way down the aisle with the carts. And the people were screaming. <laughs> but we made it okay into Reykjavik for the refueling. And the rest of the trip was easy. I splurged a bit and took the train from Luxembourg City up to Amsterdam. Arrived there in the nighttime, and I was tremendously disoriented and confused. I wandered around in circles, and I kept going through the red light district and ending up right back where I started in the damn square. And I finally just gave up and sat down. I didn't know what to do. There was no place for me to stay. That's when I became friends with Franz. Franz was another young guy, and he came up and he said he really wanted to do what I was doing. He wanted to put on a backpack and travel around. I stayed with him for about a week. He had a girlfriend, Francois. I gave her the desiderata, and then I went off touring while he made some money, and we got together later. At that point, we went up through England and into Ireland looking for Irish music. Franz played the spoons and wasn't real popular with those bands. <laughs> but we had a fine time. And when we came back, and I, we went to Luxembourg, and I waved goodbye to Franz, I gave him the last few European coins I had. I held on to those half dollars, because money was short. That's all I had left. I was confident, though. It was going to be fine. Everywhere I had been, I had met really kind people who were happy to take me in, who wanted to hear my stories, who wanted to know where I had been and what I had been doing. And they treated me well. And when I didn't meet those folks, well, I could just walk on. I could camp in the open and everything was going to be fine. I could get from New York to Seattle on $2.50. <laughs> so I went up to the counter in the airline. I had my ticket. I had a letter confirming my reservation. They looked at the, my papers. They looked at my passport, and they said, this is all fine. You can just go right over there and pay your exit tax and be on your way. I said, exit tax? What is that? Oh, it's only $10, but you must pay before you can go to departures. I said, fine. I went outside, and I sat. Did I rave? Did I curse? Did I cry? Did I pray? I, I don't think so. I don't remember. I think I just sat there, dumb, thoughtless, shocked and unable to think. What was I going to do? It was only a few hours. How was I going to get that 10 bucks? I don't know how long I sat there. I didn't know what was going to happen. But as I was sitting there, I looked down the airport drive. 
And I saw two fellas I knew from high school. <laughs> I hadn't seen them for a couple of years. But there they came, Craig and Kelly walking up the way. And it was fine. Craig lent me the 10 bucks. We went and checked in. Kelly got bumped. Craig and I had a lot of time on the airplane to, to check in and catch up on what had been going on because I had the seat next to Craig. Karma? I don't, I couldn't think so. I couldn't think so. Not in this life. Not in this life. Kelly was a nice guy. He did well. And me? Well, I didn't even begin to get my life together for years after that. But you know, something happened. I learned something new. Grace upon grace. You're listening to KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on October 9th, 2018. The theme for the evening was karma. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit our website at mudrooms.org. Audio production by Alita Bus. Additional help from Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Jeff Smith, Rich Moniak, David Noon, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Grayscale. I'm Alita Bus. Have a great night.